when you have like Zen Master Song San says, and enough mind, then whatever you have, just whatever you have is enough. It's enough to give you the joy. You don't have to look outside or look far away for that sense of uh, contentment. You know, you can find it within your own local community, within your friends. And uh, I think that perhaps is one way that practice helps us to take away this hunger that uh, we always need to satisfy, which is, you know, endless. Nganseneem was born to a Chinese family in Malaysia in 1959. He was educated in the United Kingdom, went on to earn an MBA, and worked in finance. In 1992, after hearing a Dharma talk by Zen Master Sung San in Hong Kong, he began to practice Zen. He served as one of Subang Zen Monastery's first director's group and later became a Dharma teacher. After completing four 90-day retreats in Korea, he ordained in February of 1997, becoming the last monk to be ordained by Zen Master Sung San. He continued to train in Korea, sitting several additional 90-day retreats, and in 2013, he returned to Malaysia and started Zen Space Penang at the Hangwon Zen Center. He received Inca, or permission to teach, from Zen Masters Wu Kuang and Dae Kuang in 2015. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quanam School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. How is it to to help people encounter the Dharma in Malaysia, in Penang? Here in Malaysia, we're a Muslim-majority country where I think about 60 of a percent uh, are Muslims. And then there is like 20 to 30 percent who are Chinese, of which uh, a percentage, I would say maybe 10 percent of that are Buddhists, practicing Buddhists. But it's a very secular country, so there's freedom of religion. And uh, practicing here is, um, is very interesting because there is a lot of Theravada influence as well as the Tibetan influence, but um, Korean Zen is uh, very rare. In fact, when I first came here... Um, Nobody really knew what it was about. And I said, have you heard of Zen Master Sung San? And then they kind of drew a blank. And uh, I was completely expecting that. Then I said, uh, perhaps the Chinese Sixth Patriarch uh, 
we know. And some people had heard of him, even though he was the greatest Zen master in China, but quite a lot of people hadn't. So that was the situation that we were starting off with in Malaysia, that uh, the kind of experience with uh, our form of Zen practice is perhaps uh, <clears throat> not very great. So, uh, but practicing here, I think everybody is very open to trying new things. So many people come and try out practicing. And uh, those who like it stay. Those who don't find it suitable for them will tend to go and find some practice elsewhere. But now we've got a small core of about 15, 20 people who come regularly every week uh, to practice. So that's, I think, very encouraging for me and very encouraging for everybody who comes. So here at the Cambridge Zen Center, you know, we get a lot of people that come in and, and some of them are here because they uh, want to have a, you know, a quieter mind or they want to concentrate more. And, and then there are some people who are really looking to find out who they are. And I'm wondering, you know, who are the people that show up in Malaysia looking for, you know, uh, teachings from in the Zen tradition? Um, I think generally... The people that come here, I find, are uh, looking for some way out of the difficulties in their life. They may be experiencing some challenges uh, in their relationships or work or generally in their personal lives. So they're looking for some way out of their particular suffering. And uh, perhaps they have tried other avenues of practice and have not found the kind of answers they're looking for. And then they come to us because we're relatively new and it's something perhaps different in inverted commas. And uh, then for those who find it helpful, they tend to stay. Now, if I did the math right, you were uh, 33 or or so when you first heard Zen Master Sung San at a Dharma yes. talk and you were in finance. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a way that you relate to these people. Uh, you know, you left this career in finance mm. or, or first you went inside all of these long retreats for 90 day retreats, uh, which, you know, most people yes. are intimidated by a week. Yes. Um, and so I'm just wondering what your question was that was, really driving you uh what can you see yourself in the position of these people that came in or how did how did how did that happen um i actually was quite uh, agnostic to begin with uh, from an early age actually and uh, i kind of rejected most forms of religion and uh, kind of subscribe to this idea that religion is the opiate of the masses. So my focus is very much on building a career and being what you would perhaps think of as a serious business person or a serious corporate executive until I heard Zen Master Song Sa and then it was like a whole new world opened for me. And 
I still didn't have any ideas about doing any long retreats, but I was just very curious. Uh, he piqued my interest in, in, in Zen meditation practice because of the clarity of his teaching and the down-to-earthness of his style, which I very much uh, was attracted to. So that's how I started. <clears throat> and uh, I, had, I had no intentions of going on retreat because I still had this... Uh, kind of ambition to be, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder. But uh, it took like about a year or so, then suddenly I found myself in this slightly different frame of mind. We say that practice changes you, and I think that's what happened. I was not aware of it, but suddenly I felt that I should go on retreat. And after I did the first retreat, which actually was pretty intimidating, it wasn't easy, but there was something about it, the, the actual ability to just um, have time to practice and look inside, which I thought was hugely beneficial. And when I came back to work, I found my perspective on, on uh, corporate life had completely changed. I was no longer driven to achieve, and I was quite happy to stay where I was, but as you know, within a corporate environment, you can't really stay where you are. You either, you either go up or you move sideways or you go out. Mm. So, um, but anyway, it took some time. And if you had asked me in those first few years whether I would want to become a monk, I would have uh, laughed and fell off my chair. <laughs> 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 but again, somehow practice changes you. It gives you a different perspective, and the things that you thought were so important, you know, having that corner office, having that high floor, having that uh, big desk, it's so important, actually isn't. You, get to, you see through all these uh, ideas that uh, you have kind of taken on, and then it became a very easy decision, in fact, to... to to ordain as a monk because I felt that that was the uh, most important thing I could do with my life. You know, sometimes I hear in when I'm talking to people uh, that the change almost articulated as a fear mm. in the sense of they are worried that if they practice, all of a sudden they're going to be faced with, you know, the life that they're living and they're, and they're going to, you know, have to give up something. Mm. And it's always such a peculiar, for me anyway, it's a peculiar question because I'm like, well, you know, you may, you may not. You, I have no idea whether that will happen right. for you. But right. um, but what, what, an, what a curious fear. Yes. Right? Mm. That you will practice and realize that you're unhappy <laughs> and that you'll have to make a change in your life. <laughs> and, you know, but uh, yes. there's something so attractive of the, yeah, but I want the, I do want the corner office, whether I'm unhappy or not. <laughs> yes, we, 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 we enjoy our suffering, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as long as can suffer in comfort. Suffering comfort, yeah. Yes, suffering comfort. But uh, yeah, I think it's 
it's very difficult to let go of what you're used to and step into the unknown, which we call don't know, because that really opens you up. And I think, you know, in my opinion, it's a, it's a very, very uh, enriching experience to just open yourself up to different experiences. But uh, for some people, not all, uh, it may be quite scary because they have to let go of what they are familiar with. And that uh, familiarity gives some comfort. But I think if one, I think one of the key things about practice is you have to open up and be vulnerable. And uh, that vulnerability enables you to accept whatever comes your way as you practice. So as you practiced, as you started doing, the you did the first 90-day retreat and then the, mm. the second and the third, fourth, and I, I don't know how many you've actually done. I, I've lost count. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow, that many. So, yeah. um, so a lot of sitting, and there must have been some moments where you're like, what am I doing here? Mm. <laughs> Or maybe not, I don't know. But uh, from my perspective, there must be some moments. And I'm just wondering how you wrestled with that, uh, you know, sort of staring into the moments of abyss when you're like, is this the life? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing with the mm. practice? And did that come? or? Yeah, I, it it definitely does. Because It definitely did to me because it, and especially at the beginning, uh, after a few years, of practice and uh, you're sitting all these retreats two retreats every year two three month retreats every year and uh, you kind of look at yourself and say what sort of progress have mm. I made so far and you know usually the answer is I can't discern any particular progress so uh, it can be I mean there were times I th when I thought well maybe I should just go back to secular life and you know uh, be able to go to the movies and do whatever I want and and so forth. But the thing that really held uh, me to the practice and and to to staying as a monk was, I think, the community life that everybody else was. Uh, my Dharma brothers and sisters were still uh, following the path, and that gave me the support or gave me the uh, the encouragement to keep going. I mean, these thoughts will appear and they will disappear. Like, you know, what am I doing here? It comes. But if we give, we feed these thoughts and give them substance, then it can get overwhelming. But uh, what I found was that even though they could be quite strong at times and they stayed for some time, as long as I didn't keep dwelling on it and feeding it then after a while i find it was gone just like any other thought really it just comes and goes and how did you i don't know this may sound like it just a silly question but how did you not feed it well it's not easy not to feed it <laughs> yeah <laughs> because you're so used to this kind of uh movie that goes on your head but just the simple practice of coming to our, back to our breath. I mean, it's not always easy. And your mind will tend to t 
take off in that same direction again because it's so used to trotting down this well-worn path. But uh, I think that's the that's the importance of practice where we train ourselves to take another path or to to put our attention in a different place rather than to follow our usual habitual thinking. So our breath, <clears throat> coming back to your breath. I was listening to a talk you were giving uh, at a Whole World is a Single Flower conference. Mm. And you were talking about the the hunger, the in, sort of insatiable hunger of humans. Mm. And what you just said a moment ago about where you are in the corporate world, it's like there is no staying in place. Like you've either got to go up or you're going out. Mm. And you had this line that I, I really was struck by. It really hit me where you said, you know, why are we such intelligent and, and capable? You know, why are we such a, an intelligent and capable species with self-awareness? And why are we so unwilling or unable to save ourselves? Mm. And then you went on to have this response saying that, you know, our, our sort of salvation, if you will, our, you know, the saving of ourselves is going to happen through people who um, inspire us to something else. And uh, you included musicians and artists, but also uh, spiritual teachers. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about, you know, how the spiritual life and in particular the practice life is going to be the thing that, if anything, uh, saves us from our own, <laughs> our own unwillingness to save ourselves, you know, <laughs> which just seems so clear. We truly seem to be unwilling, but mm, mm. yeah, I think it's back to our habitual thinking, our, our habits that keep us in our comfort zone. And I think that's where practice comes in, where it, allows us, as we continue to practice, to see that um, we have the we have the innate courage and the ability to step out of our comfort zone, to connect with this world in a very uh, intimate <clears throat> and personal way that we do not see it as a separate thing from us, which we tend to as human beings, we tend to see ourselves as a kind of like a master of the universe and uh, uh, ruling over everything else in this earth. And we basically are doing that. We are, the, we are such uh, amazing beings that we have been able to... Uh, subject the earth to whatever we want it to be. But if we practice, we can start to see that we're not that. We're actually just part of everything as a whole. And if we do see that, then we're not going to do things which will harm our actual home. You know, it's same as not harming your own children, or your family or your friends, because you feel they're very much part of your family. So this whole planet and everything that's living on it is actually 
part of our family. So I think practice helps us, helps our mind become wide to be able to see that and accept that. So I think that's why spiritual teachers are very important because they also help us to be able to do that. And so when you're working with the people who come to Zen Space Penang and they come because they're struggling with a relationship or they're struggling with a, their work life, how do you, as I imagine you sort of start, start them with just a breathing meditation or something, but is there at some moment where you move them towards this other, um, you know, the, the real source of the suffering that is really not the relationship or the work, but this other separateness? Or how, how does that happen for you as a teacher? I don't think that I can actually have the power or ability to, to do it for them. It's the practice that actually does it for you. You know, when you, when people, often quite a lot of people come with their relationship work problems, and the first thing I do is actually to listen. And usually within uh, their problem that they articulate is actually the answer. They actually do have the answer within themselves. But it's just being able to see it and also having this willingness to accept that that is the path they have to take if they want to find a solution to their issues. So... Again, uh, I don't try to fix their particular problems or their karmic issues, but let the practice encourage them to practice and allow the practice to help them. You know, in the, in the same way actually that it's helped me. So that's the uh, benefits of practice. I think it's so powerful. So when I, you know, I was listening to that, that talk you gave, um, you know, you were very impassioned about, you know, what's going on on the earth, the sort of environmental degradation and invasive, invasive species. And you, you actually had this incredible story about the limestone from your hometown and just watching the, the hills be sort of mined out in your right. hometown. Yes. Um, and I'm just wondering how you see the practice as a solution for, for what we're doing. It feels so overwhelming, mm. this, the, not just the environmental degradation, but the, the hunger of humanity to, mm. that is at the root of the degradation. And, right. you know, it's, it would be easy to just, you know, just be nihilistic <laughs> you yes. know, so, so how do we go down that path. <laughs> yeah how do we not go down that path and go towards the okay well at least this practice will help I think uh, in being able to see the beauty of all things that there is beauty inherent in everything if we take away our own opinions and ideas about everything then it's just really does appear in front. Even those broken 
those mountains or the hills which have been uh, blasted away to create, make more cement, they actually have the beauty within themselves, but it's just allowing yourself to see that and then being clear, having a clarity of purpose in your life as to what you would like to do next. I mean, I don't think everybody is going to be an environmental activist, and uh, but just being able to see what is going on in front of you can help you in your own way realize perhaps you don't need that new handphone. You can, you don't need that new car. Uh, you don't need to fly uh, twice a year to some far off destination for your vacation. And you know, when you have like Zen Master Sung San says, an enough mind, then things, whatever you have, just whatever you have is enough. It's enough to give you the joy. You don't have to look outside or look far away for that sense of uh, contentment. You know, you can find it within your own local community, within your friends. And uh, I think that perhaps is one way that practice helps us to do that, to take away this hunger that uh, we always need to satisfy, which is, you know, endless. It's funny, I find myself uh, in the, in this moment being like that person who who doesn't want to give up travel and it's like, no, I don't want to give up my my hunger. I want to travel. You know, and I yes. know that's not what you're saying, but uh, it's like I, I all of a sudden had this rising drive to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, mm. I don't want the practice to change me. <laughs> yes i it just happens naturally i think it's it's not something that we can consciously control mm -hmm. uh it just happens naturally then then like for myself i i used to be a very impatient person and uh quite demanding of others but somehow after many years of practice, this kind of impatience has gone, I think. You know, it does still come back, it's just still, but it's much, much easier to deal with, you know. It's just, I find it much easier just to sit, if, if I'm in a huge traffic jam, I just sit back and breathe. And uh, it, which, which before practice, I would be, you know, cussing my head off. <laughs> so, I can't tell you how it changes you, but it does uh, change you. And it happens in such a natural way that you probably don't even notice. But I think your close friends and families will notice. You know, in another place you were talking about, you know, that in fact thinking is important and, and why it, uh, it's not that we're trying to not think, mm. but that there was this, there was almost, there's a, a carefulness that we needed to engage in where, you know, if you're clever, you can create these really great arguments for why, um, you know, your opinions are good and they can sound so convincing. Sure. But then when you're practicing Zen, there is just a different 
quality that you're going for. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what that difference is. I actually can completely identify with that because many times in interviews when I was trying to give an answer to a Kong'an, uh, my teacher would say, you're trying to be too clever. And uh, yeah, our cleverness, I think, trap can be a trap for us because it's then so easy for us to be able to justify everything. Uh, but again, when it comes to practice, you begin to see through your own cleverness and realize that uh, perhaps there's not that much substance to it at all. In fact, there is really no substance to our cleverness. But realizing also that it is a very useful uh, attribute to have because if applied in the right way, there's, like, you know, there is no right or wrong about anything. It's just how we use it and how we use it to help others and the world that we live in. So it's not a, not, I, I would say that cleverness is not a good or bad thing. It's, it's just how you use it. So I think practicing helps you to see that and then being able to direct yourself in a way that is beneficial for others. That's all it really is. Whatever talents you have, I think it applies to everything else. Hmm. So I, I'm guessing that you come across a lot of people who they see the value of the practice. Maybe they've come to Dharma talks and they like what you have to say, but they're not quite ready for a serious practice life. And, you know, maybe they say, oh, I'll, I'll practice when I retire or, um, you know, when I have more time. And I'm just curious what you, how that, how that lands for you. Yes, I, I really try to encourage him to practice more because as like <clears throat> Zen Master Sung San would say, nobody guarantees your life. But that seems to be such a faraway notion for so many people. Our assumption is that we have time. We have time until we decide uh, when we will start practice. And these stark realities that we don't know, nobody really knows. That's why nobody, nobody can guarantee our life. And uh, if we do not start do doing what we want to do, practice, for example, now, we may not have an opportunity in the future, despite whatever we may think about our future. So, the moment is always now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Myung Ansim encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting their Facebook page by searching for Zen Space Penang. 
I'll also put a link in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&As, interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review of the podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.